Good morning. Morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Can I invite you to uh, bring your conversations to a close? Thank you. That was good timing. Great. Good to see you all this morning. Wasn't the choir fantastic? There's joy in the house of the Lord. Surely our God is in this place. What wonderful words to sing. I am uh, I'm 47 years old. I'm going to be 48 in a few weeks' time. That's right, 48. I know what you're thinking. How does he manage to look so good at that age? 48 is a long time. 48 years is a long time. They say that in politics, a week is a long time, but uh, half a century in politics is an extraordinary long time. In my 48 years on earth, starting in 1974, up to the start of 2022, I've seen nine prime ministers and one ruling British monarch. But if you're just over two months old, you'd have already seen two monarchs and three prime ministers. The use of the word unprecedented has reached unprecedented heights in these unprecedented times. But there's good reason for it. Certainly uh, in my life, these sorts of rapid changes of leadership and the associated public whiplash are without precedent. And not only have the leaders changed rapidly, but actually the nature of leadership has changed too. When I look back to the start of my life, the Prime Minister was Harold Wilson, and the uh, US President was, who's that? Yeah, well done, Matt. Gerald Ford. Anyone remember what Harold Wilson was famous for? Uh, yeah, the pipe. <laughs> Anyone remember his famous scandal? Anyone remember how Gerald Ford used to uh, tweet conspiracy theories through the night? No, me either. Does anyone even actually properly remember Harold Wilson or Gerald Ford? By today's standards, these guys were pretty boring and predictable, and that's not a bad thing for a prime minister or a president to be. There's an awful lot to commend. Stable, predictable leadership. Leaders shouldn't spook the horses every time they speak. They should create a, a non-anxious presence by their leadership and speak optimism and confidence into people. God, please give us more leaders like that in the world and in the church. Of course, we fast forward four decades from Harold Wilson and we get, I think I've said this from up here before, Donald Trump, who the Washington Post claim in his first year of presidential office made 2,140 misleading claims. That's 5.9 lies a day. As we speak, Donald Trump is facing criminal proceedings for his part in the Capitol riots. Pretty rough, isn't it? The change in leadership. And yet, as of last week, Donald Trump had a higher approval rating amongst Americans than the sitting US president, Joe Biden. It's remarkable. What has happened to our view of leadership and how have we got here? And as we consider these kind of cultural and leadership and followership issues and these changes, what should we be thinking about how that affects us in the church? Church leaders are held to high account, and rightly so. All of the uh, biblical qualifications for eldership in the church and leadership in the church are character-based, and uh, none of them are about how clever or how able you are. Don Carson, who's a theologian in the States, says that the qualifications for eldership uh, are remarkable by their unremarkableness. None of them say that you should have a PhD or should be able to run the 100 meters in under 10 seconds. They say things like, don't get drunk. Be kind and hospitable. Love and prize God and help others too. Be prepared to lay down your life in service for those whom you are responsible for. 
by those standards, Donald Trump, who was and one day again could be the most powerful leader in the history of the world, would not qualify as a leader in a local church like ours. The Washington Post is right. We couldn't have him leading anything here at Gateway. I'm not trying to specifically have a pop at Donald Trump. I'm trying to make the case that there is something worth thinking about here when we consider the biblical paradigm for leadership and what that's meant to achieve and what it entails and how radically different it is from the values associated with worldly leadership. And it's this that I'm going to talk about this morning as we head towards January the 8th as we finish our building work, as Matt was saying, up at uh, Alder Road, which is getting scarily close now, and as we organize ourselves in what is essentially, and we need to think in these terms, two church plants, we're restarting this congregation here and again at Alder Road, there are going to be significant moments of leadership and followership required from all of us, myself included. I I speak to you both as a, a leader in this community and as one led that will at times cause us discomfort or pain or perhaps disappointment in those who lead you. And that's because leadership moments often create resistance. And resistance can lead to discord, and discord can lead to disharmony. And so we need to prepare our hearts now for those times. And so I want us to have a, a biblical paradigm for what leadership and followership should look like, where we look to and listen and follow after God, not a, not a kind of a corporate or cultural model where might makes right. And if we're going to do this well, and if we're going to avoid pain when we feel disappointment in our leaders and when things feel uncomfortable, then we do need to have a biblical framework for what this means, because the Bible tells a better story of leadership. It tells us what it's meant to look like in the church. It tells us that it's God given for our spiritual health and our safety and to help us to be able to better partner with God in his purposes for humanity. At the start of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about this dynamic between himself and the Corinthians. If you've been tracking through this preaching series in 2 Corinthians with us, you'll know that the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians are letters written by Paul to his friends in a place called Corinth, to a church that he helped to plant and establish. And since leaving, things have become really theologically bent out of shape in this church and relationally strained between Paul and the Corinthians. And so he writes to them, and he visits them over the course of about four or five years to try and remedy this situation. And so on one occasion, Paul visits them to try and fix this, and they completely reject him. It goes really badly, partly because the prevailing worldly wisdom tells them that there is a better way and better, stronger leaders for them to relate to. After all, why would you listen to boring Harold Wilson when you can have exciting and uh, entertaining Donald Trump? That's the kind of cultural battle that Paul is facing. And so he goes away, and he writes to them again, and he, he plans to visit them and to readdress some of these issues with them. But then some things change in his plan, and it's this that I want us to read together today. So we're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It'll come up on the screen, but of course, grab a Bible if you need to. And you'll, uh, you'll note, if you're looking at this in the church Bibles, that this, t- this section is entitled, Paul's Change of Plans. Let's read. Paul says, now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that... 
As you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I both say, I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I've grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Okay, when you boil this passage right down, what, what's happened here is simply this. Paul plans to visit the Corinthians a second time to fix what's going on there, but he decides, having heard from God, that the more peaceable thing to do is to kind of hold back and to not further inflame things by being there in person, and instead he'll write to them, and then he'll make an appeal to them for peace and for godly living. That's why this passage is called Paul's Change of Plans in your Bibles. But rather than seeing the wisdom in this, the Corinthians see this as Paul's lack of leadership strength, that he is, as it says in verse 17, just fickle, or in the same breath saying, yes, yes, and no, no, indecisive and insecure in his decisions. It looks to the Corinthians that Paul is just indecisive and lacks leadership conviction. And Paul responds to them in verse 12 by saying, actually, our boast is this, that we've acted towards you with all sincerity and integrity. And importantly, when I changed my travel plans to you, it wasn't out of worldly wisdom, the might makes right, but out of God's grace. And in verse 23, he says, I call God as my witness. It was actually to spare you further pain and judgment that I called off my trip. That's his leadership motivation in this moment, not to crush and to dominate like every other leader in that culture, like Caesar, like Nero, like Pilate, but to serve and to bless them, even if that means having to make a leadership decision that seems out of step and unpopular. And in that case, in this case, it, that, that might mean changing his travel plans to them. And he sustains his reason for this by appealing to God, who he is listening to and following, which is, of course, key for the Christian leader. He's saying that it's God's grace that made me change my plans. And he's not trying to kind of push the blame away from himself onto God, because then he appeals to God's very nature. He says, 
God isn't yes, yes, and no, no. God is always yes towards us. Gateway, God is always yes towards us. He always does what is right and best for us. And the evidence of this is Jesus. God didn't waver or vacillate when he sent his only son to die for us. And it's this truth which is forming my inner leadership conviction that all I do is based on preaching this Christ and as best as I can leading and pastoring and caring for you and loving you by taking my lead from Christ, even if that means changing my plans and making it seem to you as if I'm double-minded or fickle, even if it means making unpopular decisions. And what I want us to see today is how we all, both as leaders and as followers, which we all in this room are, respond in those moments in the best interests of our unity and for the sake of the gospel. And to do so, I want to just have a few minutes just to expose what I believe so often lies just beneath our own leadership biases and skepticism. And this seems a really good time to do so because we've all had plenty of practice in the current political climate that we find ourselves in practicing this stuff. When, when things break down between leaders and followers, when we get disappointed in our leaders, like the Corinthians do with Paul in this passage, it's always due to one of two things. It's either poor leadership, which is the one that we are all very easily able to point to, or the one that's a little bit more difficult to discern in ourselves, poor followership. And this usually revolves around, I think, one of four factors. Number one is that the leader is just a bad leader. That, that happens. We've seen plenty of evidence of that in our lives. It might be that the leader is put on an unhealthy pedestal by the followers, and that can only lead to disappointment when things go wrong. As an aside, as, as elders, please never do that with us in the church. We are in service to Jesus, and only he should be on a pedestal. We're just normal men who get stuff wrong and feel temptation and get frustrated and disappointed ourselves and are just doing our best. So never put us on a pedestal. Jesus is on a pedestal. Number three is that we think that we could do it better ourselves. How many times lately have you said, why on earth did the chancellor do that? Why on earth did the prime minister do that? Well, number four is you just don't like being led. And so when someone calls something out in you or tries to move you out of a place of comfort or sin, you react badly. I've, I've done that. I'm sure we all have at times. And these things are all just human nature. We can't overlook the fact that we're humans. They've always been present. But we're in a time in human history when leadership at every level is being challenged and rejected. And partly this leadership crisis has to do with a culture in which if you stand for something, as a leader must... Somewhere in the Twitter sphere, someone is waiting to take you down or to cancel you without consultation, often anonymously or from behind the safety of a keyboard somewhere in, I don't know, Idaho or somewhere. And that is because in our culture, and we've talked about this a lot from up here, we are increasingly isolated and individualized beings. Rather than being rooted in healthy, accountable communities, we're always looking to remove ourselves from it. And this means that it's really easy to cook up our own version of the truth and how the world should be. And with unprecedented access to technology, that allows us to shout loudly at what we disagree with and to shape our own philosophy as to how the world should be. And therefore, everything is up for grabs. 
and therefore leadership becomes devalued. Once upon a time, the leader knew stuff that the followers didn't. And so following a leader was both an act of faith and it was vital for our well-being. But now we're swamped with information and it's all completely open to interpretation. So what's the point of a leader? I've got a phone and some bloke on YouTube reckons that this is a good way to live. So I'm just going to do that. Not what a parent or a church leader or a politician or the Bible tells me. In a recent poll run by The Guardian of 9 to 18-year-old girls, they ranked being a leader the lowest in a list of 17 attributes for future work. 80% of people right now aged between 18 to 35, surveyed by Barna, which is a research group for Christians, believe that society is in a leadership crisis right now. Another article I read recently suggested that young people are less likely to want to be in leadership positions than in any other generation before them. And that percentage drops even further in the church. And this is a problem because the Bible teaches that leadership is a vital part of how God is working in the world and through his people. And it outlines the danger of missing out on this. Classic verse in uh, the book of Judges. The book of Judges is uh, the long history of the judges who were placed as leaders over Israel to ensure the well-being of God's people. 21 chapters, spans 400 years, ends like this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. We just did what we wanted. We got rid of our leaders, and we just did whatever seemed right to us. And it wasn't long before Israel collapsed into chaos and idolatry and conquest. But, Romans 13, verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Leadership is from God, and it's beneficial for us. And this is because in developing his church. Just look around. God has placed all sorts of different people with different gifts, leadership being just one of them, that we might operate as one body for his glory and for his witness into the world. Paul, as you know, often talks about the church using this metaphor of the body with different parts. Some of you are like a thumb, so be a thumb and glory in that. Some of you are like a wrist, so be a wrist. Some of you are a knee, so be a knee. And as we pull together and work together with Christ as our head, so we'll operate in a way that brings glory to him and keeps us united and safe and on mission. Paul kind of borrows this body metaphor from the Stoics, who were Roman philosophers, as they considered what it would take to form the perfect city. And they came to the same conclusion. For the city to flourish... You need street sweepers and bankers and cooks, and you also need a senate with senators. And these functions need to work together for their mutual benefit. So, Mr. Street Sweeper, don't throw off the authority of the senate, because if the senate does its job well, it'll be good for you and vice versa. So, get behind the senator and do what you can to lift up his hands. And don't forget Romans 13. It was God who put him there in the first place anyway. So, thank God for him and pray for him too. Be a led person, because that's how God would want it. And it's, it's this image that I want us to take into this next season at Gateway as we restart our 
two congregations, which will be full of opinions and decisions and, dare I say, stresses and disappointments at times when things don't go the way that you or I might have chosen. But in all of this, what the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us into is to lift one another up and to play our part in the body as we work together towards maturity in Christ. And the leaders are meant to point people to Christ. And the church are meant to lift up the hands of the leaders in godly submission and prayer. And in that way, the body moves forward in unison and health for the glory of God and for the good of his church. And so I just, with that in mind, I want to offer some ideas for how we navigate this in this next season at Gateway, taken from Paul's interaction with the Corinthians. The first point is this. Remember that leadership implies movement, and movement can cause friction. By definition, leadership is meant to move someone from one place to another, to possibly challenge our views or our comfort or our sin and help us to move into a healthier, more gospel-aligned, more fruitful place. Paul puts it like this in verse 24 of our, of our passage, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith that you stand firm, which implies that there is leadership work to be done here in helping people to move towards and sustain a position of joy and faith in Jesus Christ. That's a key responsibility for a Christian leader. And obviously, if you're moving towards something, then you are moving away from something. And it's that that can sometimes cause the rub, especially if you don't want to be moved. But again, you've got to think about the metaphors in the New Testament and what it says about leadership in the church. At some point, leaders, at some points, leaders are referred to as shepherds, at other times as parents. And in both cases, lack of movement will kill Sheep will run out of food, so shepherds have to help the sheep to constantly find arable grazing, because if, if you just sit in the comfort of the same sunny field forever, you'll starve. Parents have to move children along towards maturity, because you can't be 25 and only have the life skills of a four-year-old. That'll kill you too, one way or another. And so we all, as leaders and as led people, just need to look at this dynamic and see what it does so that we don't get caught out. Sheep kick and rear up when they get led, which is why shepherds carry crooks. It's for their safety. Kids tantrum when the parents lay down the law, but God gives parenthood for the safety of the child. So it's good to just note that this is how led beings react sometimes, because it'll help us to note it in our own behavior and write it in ourselves, in our own best interests, and in the interests of the community of the church. The second thing is that God ordains leadership, and he empowers people to lead, leaders to lead. Remember, there is no leadership which God hasn't ordained. In this passage, Paul says in verse 12, we relied not on earthly wisdom, but on God's grace. The job of the Christian leader is to sincerely and with integrity do what God wills within the community in which they are to lead. And whilst that can sometimes feel uncomfortable, our followership depends on trusting that God has placed that leader there for the purpose of our benefit and, his, and has empowered them to lead as well. And this means that we should both prize leadership and give thanks for it. 
We should pray for our leaders, and we should fight the deficit, the leadership deficit in our culture by leading in the church and by stepping into leadership situations as God calls you. The maths on this is, is pretty straightforward. The gospel is the hope for the world, and it's proclaimed through the church, and the church needs leaders. It needs elders and preachers and youth leaders and kids leaders and worship leaders and hospitality leaders and missionaries and church planters. And in this next season, that could be you. And if it is, then press into it and test it with others to see what comes of it. Because ultimately, it's only God who appoints leaders. The third thing is, leaders don't lord, they serve. That's a dramatic paradigm shift versus worldly culture. Paul says to the Corinthians, it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord over your faith, but we work with you. Nothing is more toxic to the leader-follower dynamic and antithetical to Christian leadership than to exercise ungodly force over the follower. And herein is a lesson for both leaders and followers. For the leader... If you think that leadership is about exerting your will over another and achieving your agenda, that just has no place in the church. We're here at the pleasure of the king for as long as he decides to help to bring health and life to people as we follow Jesus' example of foot-washing service to those in our care. To the follower, when you're tempted to rebel or to feel disappointed by your leaders, consider the stuff we've already talked about. Being led sometimes does feel painful, but take time to just scratch beneath the surface of your discomfort and consider whether you can line up that discomfort with what the gospel calls you to do or to be. Sometimes that discomfort is actually service. When someone calls you out of error or tries to pull you away from the edge of a cliff, there is momentary pain. Your intentions have been frustrated. That's understandable. But also consider what a lack of leadership would have looked like in that moment and what that would have meant for your well-being. Finally, only Jesus is the perfect leader. Everyone else is just in his slipstream. Leaders in politics or business or in the church will get it wrong at times. We're human. But it's important not to confuse human leaders, especially in the church, with its actual leader, Jesus, who is not just a shepherd, but calls himself the good shepherd, who will always do the will of God as he leads every sheep without losing one besides still waters into pastures green and who leads us through times of the valley of the shadow of death as he walks alongside us, keeping us safe with his rod and staff, who represents perfectly and embodies not just any old father, but the eternal father, God who knows that we are prone to tantrum and break the rules, and yet stands at the end of the path, awaiting the prodigal to return anyway, ready to embrace us and clothe us. And by whom, Paul says in verse 20, all of God's promises over you are made yes, and find their amen in Christ. When you say amen, you're saying a Hebrew word that means, so be it, may it be so. There's a a firmness and reliability to that word. It was actually used on legal documents that it is is a statement of the fact that because God has sent his son into the world to die for us, that every single time God speaks, he speaks with that same certainty of purpose that he did when he gave us his only begotten son to rescue those of us who he loved, the church. 
He's the good shepherd. He is begotten of the eternal Father. The governments of the world will be upon him. Every earthly leader will one day surrender to him in worship. He is the prince of all the princes. He is the king of all the kings, the ultimate leader to whom we all owe our lives and our obedience. And he has provided for those he loves through his death for us on the cross and through the church in which the full extent of God's wisdom is manifest into the world. And in this church, in this season, he has placed you and me, hands, eyes, feet, shoulders, all called to serve and to bless and to surrender to each other as he works out his plan for the redemption of the world through his body us. God's yes is over us, Gateway. As we approach January the 8th and all that he has for us beyond, let's live in the amen of Jesus, in submission to one another in the church, honoring one another's gift for the sake of the gospel, (coughs) prizing our head, Jesus. Should we pray? King Jesus, I do thank you so much for your godly leadership over us. I thank you that it is you who've called us out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, in the ultimate act of leadership, when you told death to release its grip on us, when you told sin to release its grip on us, and you have moved us. Thank you, Lord, that you, through your leadership, have moved us. God, I'm sorry for moments in which we resist or rebel, but I ask now that for all of us here at Gateway, particularly in this season, and particularly as we head to January the 8th and beyond that, that you would do us good by opening our hearts again to your will and your purposes. Lord, I pray that you would develop amongst us a unity like we've never seen before. I pray, Lord God, that you develop in us a sense of your goodness and leadership and our willingness to submit to you, perhaps like we've never seen before here, Lord God. And I pray, King Jesus, that we'd be utterly fruitful for your gospel purposes for many years to come. I ask this in your name. Amen.